Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Oeuvre Special Edition Steven Spielberg number four. Right, Matt? I, I've been giving this a lot of thought, and I kind of feel like we should maybe just, instead of talking about his next four films, maybe we can just spend the next hour revisiting Hook and talking <laughs> more about that, because I feel like there's still a lot left on the, on the table regarding Hook. Maybe we should do one of those, um, you know how those guys did like the Star Wars every minute? <laughs> yes. Exactly. Maybe we should do the podcast of, you know, every minute of Hook, extreme niche audience. I mean, it's not even that I necessarily want to revisit the movie anytime soon, but I also feel like I would just never get tired of talking about that crazy movie. It is just such a bizarre novel. I was just re-listening to our last episode recently, and uh, I feel like we just scratch the surface of things to discuss with that movie years from now when we're both very famous and well respected i think then we can take the time to carve out about a month during mm-hmm. the winter and uh, really dig deep just a, a series of articles and in a minute-by-minute assessment does that sound good yeah maybe we'll put together a coffee table book or something if people Ooh. still have coffee tables right. you know 50 years from now um <laughs> we left off uh with you know, Spielberg's greatest triumph to date, Schindler's List. And now we're going to go through his next four films. We've done a little reordering uh, from our very, very first plan, just based on The Post and uh, Ready Player One coming out. So this episode is going to be Jurassic Park, The Lost World, Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, and AI. <laughs> a nice little grab bag of films uh, from the mid to late 90s. I probably should preface that uh, originally this was intended to be a six-part series, which fit really nicely into the fact that the man basically had 30 films when we conceptualized a series about a year and a half ago. Obviously, we knew The Post and Ready Player One were coming, and I think we even kind of knew that we probably wouldn't finish the series before the movies came out. But just kind of taking everything into account, to me, it made sense to make this a shorter episode with less film so that we didn't have to split up um, Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can, which both came out in 2002, which I think both should be talked about in the same episode. So this one will be a little bit shorter, and now the seventh episode, which we're tacking on at the end of this series, will also be four films and will include his two most recent, and we'll also obviously probably do our rankings at that point. And this one might be particularly short because we start (laughs) out with... uh, You called it... I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but I I think you called this his worst movie. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm there yet. Uh, I need to assess once we get to the end of it but man the lost world jurassic park he takes a long multi-year break from uh from directing after schindler's list and he comes back with this fucking thing four years uh that's the longest that's his longest break that's the longest he's ever gone between uh directing a feature mm-hmm. in his entire career so that's not insignificant not insignificant he did however uh executive produce the flintstones casper and twister in the interim uh, probably probably the less said about that the better <laughs> sure that's fine uh, he deserved a break, though, right, Matt? Yes, he 100% deserved a break. He he finally won his Oscar. He made the highest-grossing film of all time within the same 12-month period. So, yeah, if, if ever there was a time when the guy deserved a break, it was between 1993 and 1997. How did he lose his fastball between Schindler's List and The Lost World? He didn't just get rusty in four some years, Some of it's right? probably a little bit of rust. Maybe some of it is you go from Schindler's List, you know, one of the most important subjects any filmmaker could conjure, uh, and then you come to... <laughs> You follow that up with one of the most low-stakes things ever, a fantasy movie about dinosaurs that's also a sequel. And a true license to print money. 
You know, yeah. like there was literally like, you know, this may or may not be the worst film of his career, but this also could have been one of the worst films of all time. I don't know if it necessarily stoops to that level, but either way, there's no way this movie isn't a hit just based on the title, right? Like just based on the fact that it's a follow up to the biggest film of all time. This movie is automatically a hit before anybody sees frame one of this thing. I mean, like you said, low stakes. Although Jurassic Park 3 wasn't a crazy hit. I guess it was only 10 years or whatever it was between uh, Jurassic Park 3 in the lost uh, in uh, Jurassic World, in that time, apparently audiences got their appetite back for dinosaurs. We got excited again. Yeah. yeah, I think I think in that time, people who had who had been kids in 1993 had come of age and were starting to really get ravenous for this uh, sort of like nostalgia pleasure center, right? Yes, exactly. I think that had a lot to do with it. Let me start here. The problems begin with David Kep, um, as they so often do. <laughs> with things involving David Kep. Most problems in the world can be traced back <laughs> to the Kep effect, I think. Is it weird that his like best movie is the one he directed, Premium Rush or Jurassic Park? What whatever. He's got he's got some okay things on his on his resume. Yeah, you mentioned that the last episode. I'd forgotten he he wrote and directed Premium Rush, right? Yeah. What else has he directed? Secret Window with uh, Johnny Depp? Oh, I don't remember that movie. I think I want to say that's a David Kep movie. Like he, he he's he's directed some interesting things and I, I actually do like premium rush did he write the original the the first sam raimi spider-man as well he did yeah yeah i mean he's got some super high profile stuff and spielberg has obviously used him multiple times over the years you need to look no further than the lost world to divine the fact that this guy has the capacity to be a a hack of the highest order as well yeah uh lost world and uh kingdom of the crystal skull yes he's responsible for that as well Uh, and oh man there's so many similarities between this film and kingdom of the crystal skull that go beyond just the flimsy narratives like the way this movie makes me feel eerily similar i mean the way this movie made me feel the first time i saw it in the theater is eerily similar to the way that the phantom menace made me feel to the way that the kingdom of the crystal skull made me feel i mean these really are that is a trilogy of nightmare scenarios the interesting thing here is that if if you read the history of how this got made first off the book the lost world right Michael Crichton doesn't really want to write a sequel to Jurassic Park. He doesn't want to do it, but it becomes clear that he just has to do it financially. Like, it just makes too much sense. It's going to make too much money. They're going to make a sequel movie. With or without him. So, in essence, he writes a book that is is essentially a screenplay. Like, it, it's 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 very cinematic and beat by beat. He's like, this. okay, I'm going to lay out what a movie can be. David Kep takes almost none of it, which is crazy. There, there's opportunity here for a really cool follow-up to Jurassic Park that could have had a different tone the basis of the book is that the the whole first movie was a conspiracy in general like the whole uh, lab on the island and all that stuff was 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 fake and then the real work was done on this other island and and, and that's where you know all, all the characters in the book go to sort of uncover the mysteries of, of how engine actually was creating these dinosaurs and what their real plans were and blah 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 and david kep and spielberg for whatever reason decide to stray from that and make a movie that is sort of nonsensical and really, really terrible. I, I don't necessarily disagree with any of that, but I, I do feel that The Lost World is a bad book. And even as a child, you know, what it came out in 1995, I guess. I mean, and I was obviously the world's biggest Jurassic Park fan at that point. So, like, I was on board. I was literally that kid at the bookstore. You would, you know, it might as well have been a Harry Potter book yeah, yeah. coming out, right? Like, I, I don't know if I was there at midnight, but I was literally, like, there the day the book hit shelves to pick it up and started devouring it immediately. And it didn't take me very long to sort of like start getting distracted because I was like, 
this is kind of bullshit, right? Like I'm I'm totally in the pocket for this fucking book. I am the target audience and this is bad. And then by the end of the book, I was like, that felt completely inconsequential. How are you going to make a movie out of that? And they decided basically not to. They basically just decided to start pretty much from scratch. Well, you were very, you were very discerning, uh, 13 year old apparently i don't know i mean you've revisited the original recently i'd be interested to see you know if you ever you know were feeling academic and wanted to revisit that sequel i think it's pretty bad like i think that's where it all starts i think Crichton was completely tuned out i didn't think he didn't want to do it i think he was doing it for the money and i also feel like he kind of had an inkling that maybe spielberg and kep uh were just gonna use it as a blueprint anyway and plus it's not really a sequel to the first book it's a sequel to the movie uh ian malcolm dies in the first book and conveniently he's very much alive in the lost world yeah they sort of retcon it at the beginning yeah in anticipation of this series i did reread jurassic park and i did start to reread lost world and i quit after about 40 pages because it was so bad all right thank you for proving my point (laughs) yeah Um, but i i I just remember the the blueprint being there for what could be a good movie and i i just don't understand the plot they came up with instead i mean it's, it's definitely not superior to what Crichton had had laid out in my opinion because man this movie is as phoned in as it gets there are multiple shots in this movie where like what is Spielberg doing there's one in particular where fairly early in the movie and and they're setting up in front of the trailer on the Isla Nublar or whatever and it's just this static shot I'm looking at it like there's no inventiveness and there's like it's it's such an atypical Spielberg thing to, to look at like a 90 second exposition dialogue heavy scene and him not even trying to make it interesting in any way whatsoever and there's little stuff like that dotted throughout the movie which makes me believe that either he was extremely rusty which I, I it's hard to fathom or he just really didn't give a shit yeah if ever there was an example of Spielberg completely phoning something in it, it's really this I mean Hook is an absolute disaster but it doesn't feel like it's on account of Spielberg not caring or not. It, it feels like him getting overwhelmed by the material and not really knowing which way is up but it doesn't seem like he doesn't care Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is also a disaster but it does feel like he's trying a lot of different things and like he's pretty invested in it this truly feels like he has like his brain is elsewhere I think we've talked about this uh, the Spielberg documentary that was it was HBO right um, he talks about his process and he talks about how he gets nervous every time he goes to set up a new shot he doesn't really know exactly what he's going to do until he gets to the set that day so i I suppose it's possible that he just came into this big budget movie just a little un underprepared in addition to being a little rusty and and that has something to do with it i don't think the script was salvageable anyway so maybe it's a moot point at his own admission i was doing some research and he basically said he became incredibly disenchanted over the course of of shooting this film and even started to ask himself like is this all there is like what you know basically having very existential questions about uh, about making these kinds of films post Schindler's List is this really what I want to be doing is this the kind of film I want to be making is this still who I am and this sort of like reinforces my theory that after Schindler's List he could never really go home again in the traditional sense to making the traditional Spielberg film. And that's why I don't believe he's ever really been able to do it successfully. Interestingly enough, I think that Ready Player One is maybe the first post-Schindler's List Spielberg movie that does that old-school Spielberg the best, which 
really actually surprised me. That's it's far from a perfect film, but I think it's more successful than this or Kingdom of the Crystal Skull or the BFG or Tintin even for that matter. So like to me this this is the beginning of the end <laughs> of that kind of Spielberg film. I don't think it ever happens for him again. I think other directors like JJ Abrams for example maybe start doing those kinds of Amblin films better than the guy who invented Amblin. Yeah, so so what you're positing is that his sort of, you know, loss of innocence if you will with Schindler's List made him unable to motivate himself to do something that he might deem inconsequential or it's just that he doesn't he sort of loses that muscle. Do, do you think it's it's it, it's it's more him looking down upon these things and be like I can't make myself give a shit about it. Good question. I I'm not I, I'm not sure if I could put a fine enough points on it, but it and I I don't think it's for lack of trying. I think there are films like the aforementioned Tintin, for example, or even Indiana Jones, where it does seem like he, or the BFG, that's a movie he wanted to make for decades, right? Yeah. And these are films that it, it seems like he still is like emotionally invested in for some reason it just seems like he's just not that guy anymore i think he's a better filmmaker for it i'm i'm glad that we have films like munich or catch me if you can or lincoln i i'm i'm happy to sacrifice jurassic park sequels if it means we get munich or minority report i i like latter day spielberg that's who he is now it's not necessarily just because he's an older filmmaker he's just a different filmmaker and that and that's the way it is and the lost world was a real bucket of cold water to the face for, for 14-year-old Matt Knutson. I was just like, oh, all right, well, maybe he's just not this guy anymore. He's not the guy I can rely on for these kinds of films anymore. Like, this was a very disturbing theatrical experience for me. (laughs) in 1997 like it really it hit it hit me hard and the phantom menace did the exact same thing two years later i was just like oh okay you can't rely on on your heroes in this fashion right (laughs) god yeah it's it's just not that easy he's 53 years old at this point which you know it's firmly at the latter latter stages of middle age i keep coming back to this but but i do think it's important to really wonder whether there is there was some rust involved again like i haven't been on on sets enough to to understand what the you know what gaining that muscle feels like especially on a big production but i mean do you think that is a possibility here at all i don't know i mean this is his 16th film right yeah and he had been you know he'd made a lot of movies he'd been in a lot of sets he'd won oscars he'd changed the game multiple times over he'd been on easy movies he'd been on hard movies he'd been on big movies like i have a hard time believing it's like oh i've been offset for four years because like you said he's producing stuff he's helping his friends with their projects he's busy starting a movie studio which we can talk about here in a second he had a lot of things on his plate and a lot of things on his mind but i don't think he forgot how to direct movies i i I think you're right i think it was just a shitty script and it was a lot of people sort of shrugging and being like whatever it's a Jurassic Park sequel like of course people are going to show up I think there was a little bit of a um, kind of a maybe a crass comfort level amongst these filmmakers being like yeah we can make a B-monster movie like we can do this in our sleep right like the last time we did this it was a watershed film of course we can just roll out of bed and just make this movie I I think that they took this stuff a little too much for granted and as a result they really undermined the audience I mean we still all showed showed up and at that point it was the biggest opening weekend of all time Memorial Day weekend 1990 and it was the biggest opening of all time up until the first Harry Potter film, but significantly smaller overall worldwide gross than than the original Jurassic Park. This this did 618 million on a budget of 73. It was nominated for one Oscar, but I feel has almost zero 
cultural relevance here 21 years afterwards, right? Nobody talks about this movie. Nobody cares about this movie. Nobody references this movie. Nobody revisits this movie. It really is truly like one of his least important films. Yeah, we've all decided to forget about it. I mean, in terms of positives, I will say the CGI is pretty darn good for for that for that year for that era it's a fun cast vince vaughn julianne moore pete postlethwaite peter stormare i mean obviously jeff goldblum yeah the characters are all pretty silly but this is sort of the beginning of spielberg having so much cachet that he could really start to make incredibly deep rosters every time he made a movie like he started to be able to to get some heavy hitters deep on his bench you know your pete postlethwaite and your peter stormare's not necessarily big movie stars but just heavy hitter thespians right Mm -hmm. like pete postlethwaite's character is completely ridiculous but man (laughs) is he committed to this ridiculous character like he is dialed in right he goes for the greatest character actors of his generation he's really going and it's the dumbest character they're like give me Muldoon on steroids (laughs) that was it uh and peter stormare equally silly character has the dumbest death in the movie for some reason his death just goes on for an interminable (laughs) length that's a theme of this movie scenes going on way too long oh, like the, the, the main set piece the trailer thing goes on for way too long and and that's and that seems to be what people point to is just like okay the lost world blows but like at least it's got that trailer scene right and i don't think that's a good scene man yeah oh you know i mean i don't think it's a bad scene but i don't think it's a scene that like saves the film plus what does it have to do with dinosaurs you know like it's a scene about transportation like i it's it's a perfectly well constructed rube goldberg spielberg scene but i mean it doesn't really have anything to do with dinosaurs it's fetishizing this this trailer i guess when julianne moore is on the glass and it's starting to crack on her fingertips like yeah that's fine that this this is what spielberg does really really well it's what he does maybe better than anybody else it's a silly scene in the overall context of the story yeah i was just struck by how long it it felt in the moment yes this is the longest Jurassic Park film. This is the longest of the of the five Jurassic Park films. Yeah, too long. It's, in the, in, it's one minute longer than Fallen Kingdom. Going to the mainland uh, does not work very well in this movie oh, either. God, yeah. It's really fucking stupid. I feel like that's what motivated Spielberg to want to make this movie in the first place. I, think that, I feel like that's all he really cared about doing was making his sort of Godzilla movie in uh, San Diego. Yeah, and that right? must be it's why not they in the didn't book. give a that's shit about... Sure. Yeah, that's why they didn't give a shit about Michael Crichton's book. Because so. that seems like the only thing he's really committed to doing it's it's all very very dumb but then um interestingly enough three movies later fallen kingdom kind of finally fulfills the promise of that right like fallen kingdom finally comes full circle to bring the dinosaurs back to the mainland the way this movie originally set up yeah although fallen kingdom what does that the end of the first act or a little into the second act in this movie the last yeah the last like 15 minutes of the movie or whatever all right well i think we've spoken enough about lost world (laughs) I mean, I, th- I feel like I should probably hold off judgment until we talk about this entire oeuvre. And I, don't, I also don't want to be negative and just be like, these are the worst ones. These are the, This is clearly the worst one. This is clearly the worst one. No, I want to be more positive and be like, no, no, these are the best ones. But for me, up to this point in his career, with all due respect to how bonkers 1941 and Always and Hook are, this is this is the worst with a bullet up to this point in his career as far as i'm concerned like this is truly abysmal for a guy who just won a fucking oscar four years earlier yeah i mean at least there are interesting things about always there are interesting things about 1941 uh this is a uh, just a shitty action movie I, I cannot make that assessment yet i'm I, i'm looking forward to revisiting uh crystal skull and i'm looking forward to revisiting war horse which i hated and by looking forward you mean dreading no 
no, no. It's, I, I like <laughs> academically the, looking yeah, forward so that you can contextualize them. Um, yeah, every every decision made by a character in this movie seems dumb. It's it's so depressing to watch as somebody who had seen Jurassic Park of like watching all these characters make increasingly stupid decisions, and many of the worst decisions made by these characters are made by the people who are supposed to be our protagonists, right? We're supposed to be rooting for these people. And yet you're just like tearing your hair up being like, why would you do something so goddamn stupid? Like bring a baby Tyrannosaurus Rex into your trailer. No, no. Yeah. That whole thing is ridiculously dumb. Yeah. Especially given the original Jurassic Park, the characterizations are really good. And uh, most of the decisions make a lot of sense. Like there's a logic to that movie that's easy to follow. Even the setup in Jurassic Park, you know, getting those experts to the island makes a lot of sense. And this, the setup is pretty confusing and, and doesn't make too much sense. It normalizes the experience of seeing dinosaurs to a degree that completely just extinguishes all the wonder that was built into the first one, right? Like, okay, I get it. We've all seen dinosaurs by this point. You know, we've moved past some of that initial sort of like honeymoon period with the dinosaurs. The way that they're introduced at the beginning of this movie and the way that the movie immediately like starts throwing motorcycles underfoot and stuff Mm -hmm. and they start just tranquilizing. It's just like there's no wonder whatsoever. Just like, oh, yep, they're dinosaurs and we're driving around next to them and we're running past them and we're shooting things at them. Like there is none of that great Spielberg face wonder that you would associate, you know, with these kinds of creatures. The way that the, the original original movie had sort of like conditioned us to believe that would be the normal response the first time they showed up on screen right it's disturbing in conclusion this is a bad movie and everyone (laughs) should be ashamed (laughs) you should all be ashamed of yourselves all right after lost world jurassic park spielberg decides to get a little more serious and moves to Amistad that came out. Oh no, same year. Same year, yeah. Both this is his. He's he's trying he's to recreate doing it again. He, Shit. He's trying exactly. He's trying to recreate the 1993 phenomenon. But it's important to point out that between Schindler's List and The Lost World, he also starts a movie studio with Jeffrey Katzenberg and David Geffen. DreamWorks SKG, founded in October of 1994. What? seven months after he'd won his Oscar for Schindler's List. So, so Matt, will you, will you explain a little bit of the, the context for, for them starting it, what the what the idea was, why they did it? I'll do my best. Uh, I'm, I'm no expert, although I did read a fascinating book called The Men Who Would Be King about eight years ago that I, I would recommend to everybody, all about the conceptualization of the studio, various uh, like political machinations that were going on leading up to the founding of it, and then what went on for the first five or six years years and the the animation studio basically becoming the powerhouse and then the animation studio sort of like spinning out to become its own thing and then DreamWorks basically having to concede that it was going bankrupt and having to hitch its wagon to various other studios. I mean, basically the DreamWorks experiment is a failed experiment for all intents and purposes and the book does a really good job of, of, of illustrating that in a relatively diplomatic way. So, but the way I understand it is that uh, basically, you know, when you've made the biggest film of all time and then won an Oscar for this masterpiece that people are already saying maybe is one of the greatest films ever made, you know, like within months of it coming out in theaters, where else is there to go? So Jeffrey Katzenberg basically is leaving, you know, he's this big deal at Disney. He's responsible for The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and yada yada and basically gets sideways with Michael Eisner and decides to leave Disney and decides he really wants to kind of stick it to Disney and do something radical and industry changing. So he goes to Spielberg and says, here's my idea. Maybe we should start our own studio because we have the cloud to be able to do something like that. And Spielberg's like, great, 
Let's start our own studio. We really need somebody with some deep, deep pockets. So they go to David Geffen, who is a multi, multi, multi million dollar, uh, millionaire, uh, you know, record producer. And they're like, hey, man, Spielberg will be in charge of uh, filmmaking. Katzenberg will be in charge of animation. And Geffen will be in charge of the record industry side. And uh, we'll go to Paul Allen and we'll get him to give us a nice big old $500 million injection. Each of us, SK and G, will throw in $30 million of our own money because uh, we have that line around. So we'll start off with a $600 million company and we will uh, change the face of this industry. And it all seemed pretty revolutionary there for a while, and it all seemed pretty exciting. It was kind of exciting for the first five years or so. I mean, within 94, within five years of founding this company, they had already won three Best Picture Oscars, American Beauty, Gladiator, and The Beautiful Mind. I'm looking at the filmography for all of DreamWorks right now, and especially early on, it's 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 pretty impressive. I mean, infamously, The Peacemaker is their very first movie. That movie does not do very well. Um, their first couple animated forays are, are pretty solid, Ants and Prince of Egypt. Again, like any other movie studio, it does get pretty hit and miss. And eventually Spielberg basically had to kind of prop the entire thing up on the strength of his films. They didn't have a deep enough roster of films or filmmakers to be able to, and they didn't have enough, they couldn't string together enough hits to really make the thing work. So poor Spielberg is basically having to prop the entire thing up based on his films. You know, even something like War Horse was, was a hit, like a, a modest hit, enough of a hit to sort of like keep things afloat for a little bit. And they basically had to start sort of like co-financing films with the other studios. And then eventually had to sort of downshift from being a studio of their own to basically being like a production shingle. And then they, they kind of had to sell everything off to Paramount and then they switched over to Disney and then they switched over to Universal. And now basically they're a production entity under the Universal banner, which makes sense because that's where Spielberg started his career. That's his home, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's fine. DreamWorks started at Universal. They basically started in the Amblin offices at Universal and then they branched out over the course of the last... 15 years they basically come full circle back to the universal lot and they're right back where they started except now they're not a studio anymore they're a production company essentially yeah and it's a shame because there's an alternate universe where dreamworks was looking to build their sound stages off the bluff of loyola marymount university where we matriculated they were on pace to finish building that playa vista development in 2001 which was the year we started at lmu and you have to imagine like you said an alternate universe you know at least as far as internships go that the film school at yeah. LMU that we both attended would have been a slam dunk entryway for us to be able to be like, oh, let's just go right down the bluff into an internship at DreamWorks and, uh, you know, the sky's the limit, right? It would have been pretty cool. Financial difficulties that they had to contend with, like none of their films were big enough successes to justify buying real estate. And then also there was environmental issues in the Bayona wetlands. And a lot of Greenpeace types were saying, uh, no, you can't develop this. This is the wetlands. Where are these animals going to go? Cut to 15 years later. You look down at Playa Vista, you look down at the Bayona wetlands, and it's nothing but condos. Yep. Like it's been completely, it's just condos and Whole Foods and movie theaters. And there actually has, there actually is some studio space down there. There's a, there's a whole extended campus down there now where James Cameron shot, uh, I was going to say Amistad, uh, Ava- Avatar. Avatar. So, Avatar, <laughs> pardon me. <laughs> so it actually did end up becoming production space eventually, not to the extent that, uh, you know, DreamWorks wanted an entire backlot, basically, an entire campus. And that's not what happened, but the entire thing did eventually 
eventually get developed. I mean, maybe it's for the best because they would have just ended up having to declare bankruptcy eventually anyway. Or maybe it would have allowed them to uh, make <laughs> better that movies. Space would have, yeah. With the, that infusion of LMU talent. All right, well, let, let, let's talk about Amistad, which is the second DreamWorks. Yes, exactly. It's almost like this was a sort of dress rehearsal for Lincoln. Like, all the mistakes made in Amistad are sort of fine-tuned and made better with 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 Lincoln did do, do, do you get that yeah I couldn't have said it any better myself 100% address rehearsal like tonally for Lincoln and Lincoln basically atones for a lot of the sins of Amistad if you will I mean obviously Lincoln is a movie made by a white guy about a bunch of white guys so it doesn't have to contend with some of the problematic elements that Amistad does but, uh, but yeah this is Spielberg's first quote-unquote big kid you know adult movie after Schindler's List and he's clearly trying to recapture some of that artistic magic it's a very very uneven film, to put it mildly. It's uh, it suffers from a lot of the same problems as the color purple, in that it's uh, sort of a Spielberg guy's schmaltzier version of a reality that deserved a little more edge. Probably, it is rife with sort of really uh there's a lot of pontificating in this movie you know about duty about sure. law about the founding fathers, and it becomes a little much. I mean, the climax of the movie is literally. Anthony Hopkins pontificating for like 10 minutes. Yeah, and that's... That's the last and thing it, that happened. It won him a damn Oscar, didn't it? Uh, no, he got nominated. Oh, yeah, no, nominated. He, didn't win. he got him nominated for an Oscar. Lincoln removes that schmaltz, removes that sort of disney pontificating. It, it removes bland calls to patriotism and really gets into the nitty-gritty of, of like the procedure that was, that was happening here. And this movie, when it deserves some edge and some and, and some really like you know hard discussions and it's, it's about racism and slavery and all this shit it sort of delves into a little little too much spielbergian schmaltz right yeah he's he's laying it on real thick and uh, john williams is also laying it on basically with a paint roller god yes it's too much love the guy to death but like they're both they're like all the nuance and subtlety of Schindler's List has been completely like left behind in favor of really, really laying it on nice and thick. It's almost a little bit embarrassing just how broadly they're attacking these very serious issues. Uh, I will say though, Matthew McConaughey is is still pretty good in this movie, even though he's he's playing the white savior. Like, I I, I, w- I went in because I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. I went in assuming that this would be sort of a younger McConaughey, like he he had just been like he's the it guy in Hollywood and then. 90s here and he would be sort of out of his depth but uh, I thought he handled himself pretty darn well actually well it is kind of interesting that we're we're a year removed from a time to kill here right time to kill was 96 he's already playing another lawyer in this very high profile film in the interim he was in contact so in 97 he had contact in Robert Zemeckis's contact in July we have Amistad in December early McConaughey is really really interesting like the McConaughey of Dazed and Confused obviously but also Angels in the Outfield and Lone Star I mean, he was doing some really interesting stuff early on, and I think he makes some interesting choices in this film. Problem is that the movie can't decide if it wants him to be the protagonist or if it wants Jaiman Hunsu to be the protagonist. And because of that sort of um, insecurity on the part of the storytelling, the movie is completely split emotionally. And as a result, you don't know who you're supposed to side with or latch on to. And ultimately, the smart decision would have been to latch on to Jaiman Hunsu, 
whose story is that much more interesting and whose performance is that much more sort of bravura. But the movie gets completely distracted by all these quote-unquote white saviors or all the courtroom machinations that Spielberg is clearly so fascinated by, things he would explore later and better in Lincoln, which is basically all about a political shenanigans. And that's what makes this movie a little bit interesting is that the things that should be more captivating, compelling, which is, you know, Jimon Honsu's story and the visceral sort of depravity and, and sort of disgust we should take at, at the slave trade and how this all works and, and you know, the, what, the people's reaction to it and the government's reaction to it. But instead, we're focusing on these sort of more procedural things that are that are less interesting to me than, than the story that they're trying to tell with, with you know, with the slaves and all that stuff and you know like the highlight of the movie for me i think like that opening scene in the storm on the ship is just unbelievably well done and emotional and and, and violent and visceral and just everything after that sort of is downhill the movie fulfills the promise of that with that centerpiece which happens almost right at the halfway point of the movie where we revisit where we basically go into sinke's memory yeah of of being captured that entire there's an extended vi- just harrowing use the word visceral which i think is a very good word for it i mean it is very disturbing and extraordinarily like sophisticated in how it, it handles all this violence and and depravity and and you know har- harrowing moments and you're just like oh yeah there there's the schindler's list spielberg really uh digging in here and uh, and the movie kind of like flies for a few minutes during that sequence and then it loses itself again i mean the movie can't decide what movie it wants to be does it want to be The Color Purple? Does it want to be Schindler's List? Or does it want to be Proto-Lincoln? It's 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 too many movies squeezed into one movie, and as a result, none of them are especially successful. It, it's watchable. I mean, it, it's 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 a pretty good watch. It's captivating in scenes, and like the, the acting's really it's a good. Handsome, handsome movie. Very handsome movie. Well done, period piece. But it, it, it lacks the lacks the punch that the the subject matter probably deserves. And again, Spielberg really starts to get into this thing we discussed with The Lost World, where he gets empowered to deepen his roster with just an incredible array of um, talented actors, not just the aforementioned McConaughey and Jaiman Hunsu, but Morgan Freeman in a surprisingly small role, considering that he's basically top build. <laughs> David Paymer, Pete Postlethwaite once again, Stellan Skarsgård, Anna Paquin, Nigel Hawthorne, Chiwetel Ejiofor in his very first role. Yeah, he was like 21 or 22 when he did that. Yeah, Spielberg plucked him off the stage and and put him in this uh interesting when when he's on the boat going back to africa with Sinke, i couldn't help but think to myself like don't do it chuatel like <laughs> they're gonna capture you and you're gonna be a slave for 12 years oh no <laughs> don't do it we're gonna have to edit <laughs> this part out man. don't get on that boat <laughs> Um, John Ortiz, Kevin J. O'Connor, who does his best work in period pieces like There Will Be Blood, for example. Paul Guilfoyle, Xander Berkeley, Jeremy Northam, Arliss Howard, Austin Pendleton, uh, and then, of course, the aforementioned Anthony Hopkins. Definitely a little dude-centric, to be sure, uh, with the exception of adolescent Anna Paquin, but a pretty impressive cast. Really impressive. I mean, it's it's a nice period piece. It, it all, none of it seems anachronistic. Again, it's captivating at times. It's weird because, again, the failure of the movie is 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 the sort of tonal shifts like you said and i think spielberg learned that if you're going to do this sort of bureaucratic uh nuanced law stuff and courtroom stuff you really need to dive into it and be sort of 
strategic and more procedural about it. So he, he doesn't go far enough in that sense, and maybe not far enough with the emotions of, of the you know, Jaimon Hansu Sinke character. Spielberg is also getting into a place where he is he, he starts to become so busy and starts to say yes to so many projects that he overlaps post-production with his next principal photography schedule. So the same way that he was basically editing Jurassic Park on the set of uh, Schindler's List, which worked out, he now gets into a situation where he is basically editing Amistad remotely while he's on the set of his next film, Saving Private Ryan. And as a result, you get the sense that he's kind of phoning a lot of the post-production stuff and he's leaving a lot of the stuff to just let Michael Kahn and John Williams and all these guys basically, you know, you, you guys know what I like. You guys know what I'm into. You know where I would cut there. like, And so he's sort of tuned out, you know, by the point where he really should be fine-tuning this thing um, because he's busy, you know, he's, he's on to the next thing. And this is this becomes a bit of a trend through his career, especially in the years in which he comes out with two movies in a 12-month period. So by the time he really should be focusing on the nuances of Amistad, not that it necessarily could have been saved in the editing room, but by that point, he's already on to the next thing, which it turns out was the film that he needed two films to sort of ramp up to to find his sea legs again, right? It's interesting that so many of his greatest films just sort of like came to him on spec or whatever, right? Yeah. Like it, it seems like he's he's the kind of guy who's so pliable and so uh, sort of like open to influence that a script could just land on his desk, whether it's this or you know, catch me if you can. And he's like, okay, I'm just I'm putting everything else in the back burner, and I'm just going to do this next. Yeah, I mean, the guy <laughs> literally has you know probably mountains of scripts on his desk at any given time, or things that are getting pitched to him. And if one just catches his fancy, he's like, okay, we're doing this now. It's like the post, right? The post he basically fast tracked to go into production while he was doing post on uh, pardon the pun on uh, ready player one because you're just like oh okay this is exciting i want to do this right now let's do it right now mm-hmm. tom hanks free this week yeah no one's got the the clout to really do that except for him and, you know, it makes sense i mean if you're a producer that have you know you have what you think is a great script and you got a relationship with spielberg you're just gonna say yeah i'm gonna show it to spielberg first obviously that seems to be what happened here with saving private ryan and yet the film doesn't feel forced or rushed or small i mean it for as fast as this movie went into production and was made considering that he was working on another film at the time that this was in pre-production nothing about saving private ryan would lead you to believe that it was uh that it was rushed i mean it really feels like an accomplished and considered piece of work i just wonder how much of that has to do with he's playing in these real places for the most part. I guess, I guess I don't know comprehensively where he shot a lot of the middle and ending of the of the film, but I assume it was in similar look, you know, in in France, right? Uh, no, it's all it's all in the UK. I don't think there's anything shot in France. Oh, nothing is shot in France. I don't think so. I think it's all in England and Ireland. Okay. Well, I'm not I know for a that. fact that the opening that the Normandy sequence is in Ireland, and I'm pretty darn sure that almost everything else is shot like in the the Lake County or whatever in um, northern England. The entire the climactic the village at the end like the whole climactic battle sequence was a set that they built behind pinewood studios outside of london well given that i mean it's it's not that complex a movie in terms of narrative right like you have this amazing opening sequence you have this amazing final battle sequence and then the rest i would imagine was pretty simple to find sets for or find locations for and be able to film so so it's not like there's a lot of uh tell me if i'm wrong here but i i I think narrative 
narratively, this is a pretty straightforward film. Yeah, it's not a it's not a twisty narrative. Yeah, so, <laughs> any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> I mean, I think if there is criticisms to be drawn from this film, maybe due to the simplicity of the narrative, it's all right there in the title. Yeah, <laughs> and and a lot of it is pretty darn convenient, <laughs> to say the least. I did going into my rewatch of this um, sort of think to myself like, oh, when I was younger, I'm the oldest of four kids, so you know the the sibling thing means something to me. But even growing up, I'm like, oh well, it seems crazy to me that this that the military would make this decision like like the core idea of the film the core quest that obviously they talk about and a lot of people disagree with like it's hard to see it as as noble or or making sense but i forgot to what degree the movie goes to try to convince you that it's the right thing to do you mean like the harvey presnell brian cranston yes they'll die stuff where they actually where you read the lincoln letter and yes, stuff like that exactly in doing all this legwork to to convince you that's the right thing to do the movie has this point of view that for me the movie's point of view is that this is decisively the right decision to go and try to save this guy yeah i 100 percent agree they even go so far as to reference the four brothers who actually did die there was four brothers who actually died and there actually was a movie made about them four brothers who all died on i believe all on d-day as a result of that tragedy the decision is made in this uh fictional narrative to go and and save the youngest of these four brothers. And I I, I get the idea that it's a little far-fetched or that that it's a hook that requires a little bit of, uh, you know, benefit of the doubt or whatever, but it never throws me. Like, it never, my my logic police never show up in the setup of this film. Maybe it's because I know I'm already sort of, like, on board because I've seen the movie and I know where it's going and I know how much I appreciate where it goes and where it lands. Are you are you saying that, that it's almost a deal-breaker, the fact that the conceit is a little bit sweaty? Let me ask you this. I think it's a better movie if they leave it, they don't try to convince you too hard that's the right decision. I, I think if they leave it open-ended, that the that the audience could, or the, yeah, they leave it up to the characters to decide or, or whatever, and not make it sort of a John Williams music swelling, you know, speech having, because that's a long scene with Brian Cranston and, and what's-his-face, decisively convincing you that this is the right course of action, right? And then we're moving on from there. I think it'd be better if it was sort of the movie didn't didn't take a point of view on it. And was a little more blasé about it? No, I mean, blasé's not the right word, but, but just leave that open-ended as, you know, if, if that's the right way to, to look at the situation, if, if it's worth sacrificing even one or two or all of these, you know, noble people uh, for, for the sake of one family back home. Because again, like, that seems to be the, the the thesis of this movie is that it's family or or saving one part of one big family is, is worth sacrificing other normal people we don't care about, right? Four people die. Vin Diesel, Giovanni Ribisi, Adam Goldberg, Barry Pepper, Tom Sizemore. Tom, oh, six people die to save, to save this one guy, one of these four brothers. Yeah, which is sort of like the overall philosophical or existential question about war itself, right? Like, is it worth sending all of these young men overseas to die if it means preserving democracy or whatever it is, like fighting fascism? Like, is it worth sacrificing this many so that we can save this one thing? Like the idea of like a family being able to have one son left to not lose all of their sons by sacrificing these six other guys. That is that is the overarching question of the film and the film's 
sort of philosophical, unanswerable question about war itself, right? I understand that that microcosmic view of the movie, but I'm not sure, like, the logic holds up in that, right? Like, the, the alternative of not saving Private Ryan isn't that democracy is gonna <laughs> gonna fall, right? Like, no, he's a symbol. He's a symbol for, like, Americana, right? Private Ryan is the, he is the surviving American ideal. That's what we get those Norman Rockwell, those evocative Norman Rockwell-esque images of, like, his mother they're falling to her knees, you know, in in the threshold of her doorway or whatever, like as the as they come to deliver the news. I mean, there's a, there's an intentionality to that. Private Ryan represents the overall idea of, you know, what's worth fighting for. It is schmaltzy and it is v- blunt even, but isn't that kind of the Spielberg way? Yeah. You know, like isn't that ultimately like isn't isn't this the kind of thing that he loves making movies about? Like it seems pretty obvious that he would be drawn to a story like this. Yeah, but he avoided it in Schindler's List. In Schindler's List, yeah, yeah. I mean, but you know, there is there is schmaltz in that movie, and there is a framing device which I think is surprisingly elegant and effective in a way that the framing device in this film. is a problem and and doesn't ruin the movie but i completely get why a lot of people bristle at it and i'm i myself bristle at it i didn't remember the degree that the framing device and also sort of like the close-up on the eyes and they do the same thing with tommy like they really are trying to convince you that it's tom hanks not matt damon yeah i guess so i mean i guess you know i've seen this movie so many times now that i forget what it was like the first time if i thought that that was tom hanks or not because of the whole thing with the eyes but you think it's some sort of like a bait and switch of you course it like is i really, mean okay the, the, when you transition from the framing device into you know the boat uh, about to hit up the beach it's they, they close up into old matt damon's eyes and then it's tom hanks eyes and they do the same they do the same shot that they did for the old Matt Damon to Tom Hanks after uh, the invasion and he's looking back at the beach. Like, it's it, it's not very subtle to me that they're really trying to make you think that this is Tom Hanks. And so... And the movie is taking a very interesting meta stance towards the idea of Tom Hanks' stardom, right? I mean, up to this point, we had never seen Tom Hanks starring in a role like this, and we certainly would never believe that you would kill off Tom Hanks in a role like this, right? Like, even if it is a war movie, you're not going to kill off Tom Hanks. <laughs> like... The, the idea that you would think that that guy in the cemetery at the beginning slash end is old Tom Hanks reinforces the idea that we don't think Tom Hanks could die in a film like this. This whole bait and switch is meant to make that death all the more impactful when it happens. And we've both seen this movie so many times that it's it's hard to remember seeing it for the first time and remember seeing uh, what it meant to me when it happened. I remember I do remember where I saw it the first time. It was at City Center downtown when they used to have a theater. I was about to say that theater doesn't it's not even there. City Center's not even really there anymore. City, right? City Center's there. It doesn't have a goddamn movie theater, so I have a vivid memory of it because uh, we are basically celebrating the 20th anniversary of Saving Private Ryan this week. And uh, I saw it at Grauman's Chinese Theater with my dad on uh, Friday, July 24th, 1998. I was in L.A. I was at film camp and uh, he came to pick me up from film camp and we went to Grauman's to see the movie. We sat outside on the street like we were waiting for Star Wars or something. Uh, We waited outside for about four four hours before they finally let us in and we watched the movie in you know basically the most famous movie theater in the world and right before the uh the omaha beach sequence started he just leans over to me and he goes hold on to your hat because i think he was um 
he was already aware he'd read enough reviews or whatever up to that point to know that this was going to be like one of the craziest and most violent war sequences ever put on film. And uh, he was exactly right. And what was significant about seeing this movie with my dad is that uh, his father, who he never met, was killed on D-Day. He was a bombardier and he was shot down over France on D-Day. And uh, he's buried at the cemetery where the opening and closing scenes of the film are shot. So, And I've actually been over there to visit and I've seen his grave, William Cuthbert is his name. So my last name, which is Knutson, is actually my step-grandfather's last name. So I really should be Matthew Cuthbert. So I have a quite the connection to D-Day because my paternal grandfather actually was killed on this particular day. He wasn't like on one of those landing crafts. He was a pilot. He was a bombardier, actually. He was he was killed that particular day. Anyway, it's very important. This movie is very important to my father, and that viewing was very important to him, and that kind of like inspired him. He had never been to France up to that point. He had never been to his father's grave. And so after seeing this movie, and then after I went to Europe and found the grave and took pictures of it and stuff, he was inspired to go over there and visit visit it himself and now he's very very involved with like veterans affairs and things like that oh, that's awesome yeah it was really it was it was an important sort of like a father-son experience to see this movie together and it's still a movie that we talk about like almost every year once d-day rolls around it's like you gonna watch saving private ryan this year like yeah i watched it multiple times per year dad that was a big that was a big deal that was a very big viewing for me especially to see you know i think i was this was what it's 98 right so i think it was 15 so technically not even really old enough to go see a rated r movie but to go go and see it with my dad because he really wanted to see it together at this theater was a was a big deal i I do remember when it came out how big a deal it was to anyone connected to d-day and how big a deal the opening scene was i mean i remember i do remember getting a ton of hype people making it clear that it's going to be hard to watch i mean if, if you're not into gore like this is not your typical spielberg thing and just how technically incredible the opening scene was uh what is it clock in it like 27 27 minutes. minutes okay 27 minutes apparently that scene itself represented 12 million dollars of the uh, of the overall um 70 million dollar budget and featured 1500 extras many of whom were uh, Irish members of the uh, Irish army, 30 of which were uh, actual amputees. I wanted to bring up my nits earlier um, because (laughs) they are very minor and very specific uh, because this is a masterpiece of a movie and it's bookended by two of the most amazing action set pieces, war movie, action movie, or or otherwise that have ever been put to film. Is the opening 27 minutes, is that still the greatest war sequence ever put on film like we can talk about whether this is the best war movie ever made in a second but is that opening sequence is that is that the best war scene of all time this is this would be a good podcast but like the top 20 (laughs) war scenes my my, my very initial reaction without thinking too much about it is two david uh, lean scenes uh, whether it's the the invasion of aqaba in lawrence the arabia or just the the finale in bridge on the river kwai but all right i like it just sheer audacity and ambition and technical proficiency and everything uh it'd be hard to argue against it it was a pretty big deal at the time it just like pinned people to the back of their seats and yet never felt exploitive right this is the guy who made the indiana jones movies this is the guy who made et this is the guy who made hook like this is a guy who had made all these seminal quote-unquote family films and now he's making full force leaning into one of the most violent one of the goriest sequences ever put on film for a purpose and as as disturbing as it is and as visceral as it is i never feel like there's anything exploitive 
about it. I never feel like there is viscera for viscera's sake. I never feel like there's intestines for intestines' sake or a guy leaning down to pick up his his dismembered arm just for the sake of, of causing you to gasp. It never feels like that to me. It all feels considered. Yeah, it never feels exploitative because it's all contained within the same big bloody mess like the, there are no moments that feel elevated above the whole 25 minute scene like it's it, it it all works together really well in one harrowing sort of nightmare and it does and it works narratively because it introduces you to our core platoon in a really smart and really smooth way you know you get Sizemore then you get Edward Burns then you get Vin Diesel then you get Barry Pepper then you get Giovanni BC like it really in Goldberg it, it it really like starts to inject all these different personalities and you get a sense of each of them as all hell is breaking loose right yeah and it does a wonderful job of doing this like real time march up the beach to the point where when they finally do take those pillboxes or whatever when they shooting finally stops you feel like you've not only been on this journey with them and you've been in, you've gotten invested in their survival but because it's happened in real time all of a sudden you are part of this experience you are part of this platoon you have been like baptized along with these guys right yeah and the characterizations are pretty simple but they they work and these are good young actors at the time obviously Spielberg of course could just get whoever he wanted and clearly they all they all went on to have good careers for sure yeah but again you know like like we say like choosing great actors and 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 we can talk about the further roster in this film which is really fascinating too and even in small roles i mean even somebody like vin diesel who maybe never necessarily capitalized on the promise of this film or this performance pretty cool to have him as part of this team he's the first one to die but it's still fun to have him and and you're right they they are a little bit they're right on the verge of caricature right edward burns he's from brooklyn and goldberg is the jew and uh you know, Vin Diesel is the Italian and uh, Jeremy Davies is the kind of like nebbish coward and they're 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 broadly drawn for sure, but they all make an impression, I feel. There isn't a single member of this platoon that I don't feel is a fully formed, fully fleshed out character. This movie pacing wise, given just the length of the book ending action scenes, it does scoot along even though there's there are obviously smaller action tense scenes in the middle of the movie starting with vin diesel's death scene and then the you know the german they capture it doesn't feel it doesn't drag for a two hour and 40 minute movie at all there are some patriotic speeches i I do think the brian cranston back at home scenes a little too long those are very minor minor quibbles on on what is you know one of the greatest movies ever yeah cranston you know shows up he he plays an amputee harv presnell is in that scene with him and Dale Dye, who are both great. Uh, Dennis Farina shows up. Ted Danson shows up. Paul Giamatti shows up. Nathan Fillion shows up. Uh, the great character actor Leland Orser. It's pretty impressive. What's What's fun about this movie is there's kind of like an episodic element to it as they're trudging along on this journey. And sort of the adventures they get into along the way and the people that they encounter is really interesting. I mean, you mentioned the fact that it's sort of like bookended by these two big battle sequences, which is true and great and feels very kind of like traditionally Spielberg-y. Um, but along the way, they they get into some pretty dark deep territory uh, before they finally find their way to uh, Private Ryan and even a seat like the Nathan Fillion scene where they actually find a Private Ryan but it's the wrong Private Ryan I remember the first time I saw it thinking to myself like wow that's a really dark scene like that's a really dark idea yeah (laughs) to like completely devastate this poor guy who believes that one of his you know adolescent brothers has been killed yes (laughs) but it ends up sort of like getting a laugh at the end of it even though this guy is sobbing and I remember thinking to myself like oh that's that's new 
to that, that I've never seen anything like that in a Spielberg movie before. That level of like dark humor mm-hmm. felt advanced for him which I thought was a really interesting sort of like artistic leap forward. And this movie's kind of full of stuff like that. So the the final scene, Matt Damon, he learns the news about his brothers and he refuses to go with them to safety, whether or not they would be safe going back the way they came. Who knows? What do you think about that narrative choice? Uh, you know, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, yeah, I guess that was inevitable. That had to be the way it was going to end. This movie's about patriotism. But do you think it undermines sort of general conceit at all that these guys went on a quest that turned out to lead most of them to their deaths? No, because I think sort of like going to war, you're taking into account the fact that you might be sacrificing your life for the greater good, right? So, and there's plenty of conversations in the film, most of them started by Edward Burns, about like, why is one guy worth it? Like, what what are we doing? Why should we sacrifice ourselves? We've never met this guy. Maybe he's an asshole. But again, I, I feel like he's, he's more of a symbol for war than anything else. Like the idea that going off to war to fight for the greater good is theoretically the patriotic ideal for a soldier who thinks he's doing the right thing. So the fact that they get there... The fact that he decides, that Private Ryan decides not to leave and decides to stay behind feels perfect to me. Like, that doesn't feel like a contrivance at all because he's traumatized by the fact that he has heard all three of his brothers died. So he's feeling guilty about being the only one left alive. So, of course, he'd want to stay behind to maybe sacrifice himself or at least prove that he can, you know, at least prove that he can be of, of, of service. He's worthy because of being saved. Exactly. Earn this, right? The fact that he would stay behind, yes, it's inconvenient for our platoon of guys who have already been through a lot and have sacrificed a lot and just want to go home. You know, it's a Spielberg movie. Can you imagine it in a world in which it doesn't end in a huge action sequence? No. It's the only way it can end. <laughs> it's how it has to end. And it's it's phenomenal. I mean, not necessarily better than the opening sequence because that is that's really its own animal, that's its own thing. But the you know, the last forty five minutes of this movie are as exciting as anything Steven Spielberg has ever put on film, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible. It's it's fantastic. It's so goddamn exciting and it's so inventive and it's so just like visually groundbreaking for him and Janusz Kaminski, like the way that they deal with handheld photography throughout this whole thing, the way that they really lean into the whole bleach bypass thing, uh, which they would get way into in AI and then especially Minority Report or all the crazy shutter speeds that, you know, messing with the like 45 degree shutter angle or the 90 degree shutter angle to really get that staccato look or make those light sources really streak. It's ballsy. Like it, it gets really really ballsy it's the kind of thing that only guys with this kind of clout could take chances on considering the fact that he and spielberg that this was this is the fourth film they'd made together that they were already sort of like in lockstep about these kinds of things it's like yeah these guys are joined to the hip they're they're made for each other (laughs) you know like they're soulmates they're artistic soulmates do you enjoy the opening or the final battle more Uh, you know the opening is hard to argue with but it's disturbing whereas i feel like it it, it's it's kind of disturbing it's horror it's it's, it's jarring yeah yeah, it's jarring in a way that i feel like the climactic battle sequence is much more i guess just quote-unquote entertaining right sure like it's it's a little more traditional, although there are still some very harrowing. You know, Adam Goldberg getting stabbed through the chest one centimeter at a time is pretty rough. It's very rough, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but there are just you know just those goosebump-inducing moments of just like a tank coming over the hill and dropping into the foxhole behind Hanks and Damon. They're just like instantly iconic Spielberg moments. All right. Any final thoughts before we move on to a very confounding film? I mean, I, I wouldn't argue with anybody who said this is the greatest war film ever made. Um, I'd have to like, like you would have to give it some thought and really crunch the numbers. It's 
pretty important, pretty damn important. It was a very important film for me. I, you know, I saw it, like I said, with my dad, and then I saw it with both of my grandparents, uh, my surviving grandparents, and, and it was a big deal. It was the highest grossing film of 1998. It was the highest grossing film of 1998 domestically. That's crazy. Amazing to say that out loud, right? Mm-hmm. R-rated, very challenging three-hour-long uh, war film. Proof positive, once again, that like Spielberg is kind of in a class of his own when it comes to appealing to a wide audience and you know populist filmmaking or whatever. So, highest-grossing film of 1998, was nominated for 11 Oscars, won five, including Best Director for Spielberg. He faltered with The Lost Worlds, tap-danced a little bit with Amistad, and then he found his legs again with Saving Brett Ryan, and hey, he's back. Movie famously did not win Best Picture even though it was favored to win ended up getting beaten by Shakespeare in Love and that's a movie I've revisited recently and that's a movie I really really love so I'm not I'm not quite as like hurt as a lot of people are about the fact that Saving Private Ryan didn't win Best Picture I very much love Shakespeare in Love both great movies I'm with you but it's significant that Spielberg wins Best Director for this and it's like okay he may have taken a little time off and maybe lost a little bit of his mojo, but he clearly recovered it quickly, right? Do you know what's more impressive to me than Saving Private Ryan being the number one box office movie of 1998? That AI made $235 million worldwide. (laughs) You know, I don't think we really dug into the fact that Amistad, as weird and as kind of like dark and, and as niche as it is, still did, you know, still was technically a success. A modest success, but a success nonetheless. Spielberg does not make flops. So even something strange like AI still goes on to be a pretty decent-sized hit considering how divided people are about this film. Time has been kind to this film. I think there's been a lot of reevaluation of it. But at the time, people were very, very divided about it. And uh, and it still was just an enormous summer. I mean, it came out in like July of uh, 2001, right? It came out in the summertime. June 29th, 2001. Two and a half hour movie made two hundred thirty five million worldwide on a hundred million dollar budget. Yeah, not a cheap movie at all. Definitely not a cheap movie. There's a lot happening here. I don't think I had a strong opinion of this movie either way when it came out. I remember seeing it. Remember being sort of impressed by how bleak aspects of the ending were. But besides that, I don't think it really struck me as monumental, even though this was sort of, we're about to go to college, uh, super into movies, I love Spielberg, follow up to, uh, am I right, 2001? Yeah, 2001. Yeah, so this is the summer before we went to college. So we've just graduated from high school. I saw the film with both of my parents. I, I went to it with my dad, and he hated it, and I loved it. And I went to it with my mom, and she hated it, and I loved it. So both of my parents hated it. It, but I saw it with them individually. We get to college a couple months later, and then 9-11 happens our first month in college. And I think it's significant that this movie, not only, like, much of it takes place in New Jersey and New York, but also the, the Twin Towers are all over this movie. Which is really interesting, considering that it takes place in the future, and it may, like, the Twin Towers are not just present in the present of the film, but also present in the future of the film. Like, when they fast-forward 2,000 years or something, There's those twin towers sticking out of the ice. So there's something very bizarre and almost disturbing about that imagery. Yes, indeed. I mean, it's a little less disturbing this many years later, but uh, yeah, that was, it's striking throughout how how prominent they are. Uh, I think the important thing to realize about this movie before we get into the meat of it is that you know this is a Kubrick entity you know he was the guy who wanted to make this or had brought this into production he had commissioned a treatment that he liked and he was eventually going to make he even called this movie pinocchio he was basically making a his version of pinocchio and we can get in how much his fingerprints are on this movie 
but it, it's crazy how much this movie feels like Spielberg trying to do Kubrick. It, it feels like a Kubrickian film that has been Spielbergized. And yet, Spielberg has always maintained the parts of the film that most people presume are Kubrickian came from him, and the parts of the film that people assume are Spielbergian are actually Kubrick's. So that could be damage control on Spielberg's part, but I I don't think I mean I don't think there's anything in it for him to lie about something like that. So he he maintains that a lot of the darker elements uh, were his idea, and a lot of like the fluffier, more Spielbergy things, things we would presume would be quote unquote Spielbergy, uh, came directly from Kubrick. Okay, I mean that's fair. I, who knows what's what's true about that? Yeah, what's I mean, not? You would need to vet. You would need to go through every single version of the treatment. You'd need to go through all the faxes that they were exchanging over the course of decades. You would need to go through every draft of the script if it really was important to you to break all this stuff down. The important thing is that you basically have two filmmakers who have almost nothing in common. Like, like nobody would ever mistake a Spielberg film for a Kubrick film or vice versa. Yes. It's crazy that they were such close friends. Uh, reinforces my respect for Spielberg, that Kubrick was his friend and a big fan of his work. And it reinforces my respect for Spielberg's tastes, that he was such a big Kubrick guy from so early in his career and had so much reverence for that filmmaker. I mean, it just warms my heart that these guys loved each other's work and were this close and really, really wanted to collaborate on something. It's a shame that Kubrick didn't live long enough to see this film come out because um, he made it pretty clear that he didn't want to direct it, but he wanted his friend to finish it. Yeah. So, and he missed it by two years. He died in March of 1999, four months before his final film, Eyes Wide Shut, would come out in theaters. You know, it, it's notable in its Kubrickianness that I feel like this is Spielberg's most esoteric, like open ended, up for debate movie. I mean, usually his movies are pretty straightforward in a way. You're not usually left to debate the philosophical impact or you know what it's trying to say or what it's not trying to say. Matt, what do you think this movie's about? I, oddly enough, I don't really think it's about artificial intelligence, despite the title. No, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's mostly kind of an edible Oedip- nightmare about the burden of love, kind of a reflection on the selfishness of humanity and humanity's need to play God and introduce uh, new beings into the world because they need so badly something to love them unconditionally. I really think it's about the burden of like needing something to love you and then when you are burdened with something that you have to love unconditionally in the case of uh, our main character David, the toll that will take on a character, in this case a robot, but somebody who doesn't necessarily know the difference between being a robot and being a quote-unquote human. You know, basically the entire history of science fiction or much of Philip K. Dick's career, we've ruminated on do androids dream of electric sheep? Does artificial intelligence, do the, does it have emotion? Should we think of it as, should we think of them as beings or are they just machines? And this movie is basically positing like, if you could instill the burden of love on this being, does that being deserve our pity? Does that being deserve uh, empathy as much as, as a, you know, as a human being does? And ultimately, is love different if you are 
a, a human being or if you are a robot. As a as a concept, is the burden of love different, living or machine? And then, you know, and it asks big questions like that, questions that don't have easy answers. And as a result, the movie is not interested in giving you anything like an easy answer, which is admirable ultimately. Definitely admirable. Maybe not satisfying, but <laughs> admirable. <laughs> I happen to read, and maybe we're jumping ahead here, but I happen to read a AV Club article the other the other day before rewatching this. That was basically the, the premise was uh, the ending of AI is actually perfect. There have been a lot of armchair quarterbacks that think AI should have ended with Haley Joel Osment on the bottom of the bay with the uh, Blue Fairy and just ended in that sort of existentially despairing scene of him just there for eternity. I'm kind of upset because I wonder if I would have come to this conclusion myself, but who knows? Actually, the ending is much more harrowing in, in, in so much as it's just an example of how singularly obsessed and sort of selfish humanity is, right? To give this robot humanity makes them so single-minded and sort of useless otherwise that this amazing feat of technology only cares about seeing, you know, is imprinted upon this person, only cares about this one thing while there's a whole world out there, right? Yeah, I completely agree with the idea that the ending that people quote-unquote want is for the movie to end at the bottom of the ocean with him and the Blue Fairy. The ending that this story needs is the way that Spielberg ends it. To end underwater would be kind of sad and kind of depressing. To end in the way it does with he and his mother falling asleep together in her bed is like devastating and disturbing in a way that kind of like takes the movie to the this next echelon. Like it's not just sad or just dark. It is like really, really disconcerting, emotionally speaking. I just wonder how many how many people in what segment, what percentage of the audience came away seeing like, oh, that's just a schmaltzy Spielberg ending. I think it's pretty sophisticated in the way that Spielberg is kind of like almost trolling himself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, In the exactly. way that he ends this movie, right? Like he is giving you what you would have considered to be a traditional Spielberg ending, but the context he's giving it to you in is basically saying, everything I've done up to this point in my career is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> or, or manipulative, at least. Yes, yes, yes. You know, like, I don't think he's invalidating his creative decisions up to this point, but there is a sense that there there's like a almost like a scorched earth methodology to the way that he is kind of just like setting his entire uh, mythology on fire in this final scene. You know, it's like a, it's like a meditation on a quote unquote Spielberg ending. <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, I'm sure he was very introspective in doing this, especially because this is only his second, you know, credited screenplays, you know, or, or first one since Close Encounters, right? His first feature screen credit credits since Poltergeist. But for all intents and purposes, let's say it's his first real solo feature screenplay since Close Encounters nearly 20 years earlier. Over 20 years earlier, sorry. 77, 87, 97, over 20 years over earlier. 20. Pardon me, yes. It's okay. Um, this movie is pretty methodical in its pacing. The narration, the Ben Kingsley narration is is fine uh, at the beginning and the end. This movie takes a while, a little bit to get started and then basically once the once we get out of the human realm and it's basically our mecca uh it's basically two big city set pieces and then the final one um in the ruins of manhattan so it's it's basically three sort of long scenes that we that we get here i don't know for spielberg it does feel a little slow but also that's sort of the point of this movie it's very meditative there's a lot to look at it's visually just incredibly impressive rouge city and uh 
what's what's the place before that called? With like the flesh fair? Yeah, the, fl- the, yeah, the flesh fair. I- incredible sequences. It's a hundred million dollar movie. It honestly looks more expensive than it that. It does, absolutely. You know, and especially like impressive for two thousand one. Is that the feeling you got rewatching this? Like I hadn't revisited this movie in a, in a long time, and it, it did feel uh, slower than I expected from a Spielberg movie. But that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. I hadn't seen it in probably at least five years it's a movie that i knew that i liked but it was also a movie that i knew was challenging so it's not a movie that i feel the impulse to revisit very often because i know that like once i sit down to watch it i'm gonna get sucked into it and i'm just gonna be sort of like drained by the end of it i don't know we we talked a lot about you know something like schindler's list being a surprisingly entertaining movie during the last episode yeah despite the fact that that movie is obviously very dark and very like emotionally draining but this to me feels less fun even than that you know like there is there, i mean the visuals are incredible the special effects are incredible john williams music is of course uniformly great as usual but to me this movie almost feels like a little more of an existential gut punch oh than even schindler's list there's no joy in this movie it's it's all yeah. it's very dour and very sad throughout um, yeah even the moments of so-called levity are sort of creepy <laughs> in a way yeah and Haley Joel Osment's a hard protagonist to root for because, first of all, it's a fucking robot. Um, <laughs> and second of all, it's just sort of a reflection of humanity's worst, you know, inclinations. Um, there's a lot of pain in this movie. Like, there's a lot of, like, not just emotional pain, but there's a lot of just, like, people being abused, you know, and, and, and put through the ringer. Like, lots and lots of robots being just, like, violently abused or destroyed. Like, it's a very traumatic movie. Yeah, and it's it's weird narratively in that his quest, though, our main character's quest, is something that the audience knows to be futile. They know that he's, he's, he's delusional. He's delusional. We know his quest is going to fail. Uh, we just don't know in in what way it's going to fail and so that's the only sort of tension or or something that yeah that we're not sure of in that way like again it's just another layer of 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 sadness to to the viewing experience so yeah i totally agree with you like there's not a not a lot of fun to be had here and yet it's still kind of mesmerizing there's just there's just something about it that just draws you along and, and and draws you deeper and deeper into this crazy abyss a lot of it has to do with kaminsky's incredible cinematography which is fulfilling the promise of the all the bleach bypass stuff that they started experimenting with in saving private ryan and jude law i think has a lot to do with that like jude law comes along in this film right at the point where we really need a little bit of relief and a little bit of levity right need an infusion of personality of some kind exactly exactly like we need a we need a contrast to david we need it we need to see an artificial we need to see mecca who is in contrast to the slightly off-putting the creepiness of david so he's wonderful and he was he was at a point in his career where he really was like on the verge of becoming this uh leading man and i think ultimately this film reinforces why Jula is not a leading man, but like we've said about our buddy Brad Pitt, just an incredibly beautiful character actor. <laughs> yes. Right? Like yes. he is at his best when he's in roles like this or the talented Mr. Ripley or Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. He's not a leading man. He's a he's a character actor. And he's incredible here, embodying this character, Gigolo Joe. I mean, he should have known once that hairline started receding that he had to be a character. <laughs> and this movie does all sorts of fun fun things with his hair because he's a robot, so he can he can change back between blonde and brunette. And then, yeah, you mentioned you know you mentioned Ben Kingsley early, earlier. Uh, Robin Williams shows up in a vocal performance. Meryl Streep shows up in a vocal performance. Chris Rock shows up in a vocal performance. The Chris Rock cameo is a little super <laughs> unnecessary and kind of yes, takes out the movie true. a little bit. 
<laughs> but it's that kind of film. Like it's a film, like there's so many robots in this movie that have, of course there's going to be a lot of weird cameos. Do you think that Haley Joel Osment's performance is great? Do you think Haley Joel Osment was a great actor as a child? I don't, I don't know. I think this performance is really good. I, I think it's fairly easy to play this sort of robot character. I'm not, I'm not saying I could have done it as a kid, but I'm not sure the degree of difficulty to use one of our favorite phrases was was crazy high. People say he should have been nominated for an Oscar. I'm not sure if I'm on that boat, but I wouldn't be, wouldn't have been upset if he if he had. I can't imagine a more challenging role for anybody, let alone a child. Like, how do you prepare for a role like this? You know, and and as far as Spiel is concerned how do you how do you get a child to this place i'd be very interested to know if they had like extended conversations about context and intentionality and motivation or if it was literally just like moment to moment a spielberg saying look over there widen your eyes drop your mouth here cock your head this way like if he was really just like holding his hand nuance to nuance movement to movement or if it was really like a full-bodied invocation of this character i'd be i'd be fascinated to know that i mean because if it is the latter then Haley joel osment may have been you know like genius like a child genius actor who never really, you know, never fulfilled his potential as an adult actor. Yeah, I mean, his looks didn't help as he got older. You still think he would have found a lot of cool supporting roles in his uh, later adolescence and teens and now adulthood. But I thought he's a he was a great he had a great look as a child actor and and, and I don't know how hard this role is. I'm not not an actor. I haven't really worked with actors, so I don't know. But I mean, it is certainly impressive. I mean, he's definitely the focal point of the movie. I, I just don't know enough to know how difficult it, it would be. I, I always just assume that playing sort of robots or, or non-human things are, are a little easier because people don't have any context to judge what's uh, real or not. So if you're if you're acting inhuman, you're, it's going to be believable. Actors are always struggling to find circumstance, right? And I think what's challenging about this particular character is that there is almost no circumstance to draw from. Like, it's a very difficult thing to conceptualize as a, I would presume, a very difficult thing to conceptualize as a performer, especially a child performer. Every time I watch this movie, I don't really like the character but i'm always impressed with the performance if that makes sense like it's it's tough like one of the many challenging things about this movie is that the character is kind of creepy and unlikable but i don't think that's a that's a knock on the performance like i think Haley joel osment is committing to this and he is embodying this character in a really interesting and esoteric way matt you're one of the guys who watches movies repeatedly you know once a year twice a year that you like and the fact that you hadn't seen this movie in five years proof is in the pudding like it's 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 there's a lot to talk about think about but it's just not enjoyable <laughs> experience uh to see so, so it's a movie to respect a movie to be sort of sit back in awe of both in you know spielberg's growth and just willingness to attempt something in this ilk something kubrickian but also it, it, you know all the parts don't really equal a satisfying enjoyable movie going experience despite the fact that the movie was a financial hit i think the kind of critical drubbing or the commercial confusion you know with a lot of people sort of snickering during screenings like i saw the movie multiple times at the theater and a few times people were just like laughing at some of the more melodramatic moments people just leaving the theater very confused not really knowing what they had just seen feeling like they'd been betrayed by spielberg a filmmaker who they felt that they had a relationship with and you know knew what to expect from him people just left this movie scratching their heads and i think over the years we've kind of reevaluated it and realized like this is a pretty damn deep and complex and interesting film certainly not a perfect 
perfect film, certainly a movie with a lot of issues and a lot of dangling threads, maybe. The fact that it's one of the few films he actually wrote, it's a film that he was developing with one of his closest friends for decades, makes me think that maybe this is one of his most personal films. Like maybe this movie is kind of like a bit of a microscopic indication of what's going on with Spielberg intellectually. So often he is just this big spectacle guy or a guy who's taking a pre-existing material like Robert Rodat's script for Saving Private Ryan and making it his own, but sort of filtering it through this kind of like easily accessible populist filter. Whereas this to me is him kind of working a little bit without a safety net and him kind of putting himself out there and being like, maybe this is what's actually going on with me emotionally and intellectually. Maybe these are the kinds of things I'm wrestling with. Maybe as a parent to what? He has six children, something like that. Maybe these are the kinds of things that I'm scared about, or these are the kinds of things that I was scared about as a child and I can still access that kind of thing. I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, the whole Peter Pan syndrome, the whole Pinocchio thing, I think is very, very relevant. This filmmaker who clearly has made a lot of films through the eyes of a child. And the fact that this is one of the more terrifying and disturbing films he's made about childhood, uh, I think is significant. And more, you know, him pushing further into a place where it's like, he is a filmmaker who has made films about children, but now it's time to grow up and deal with some of those stories about children from more of an adult perspective more of a deeper perspective, a scarier perspective, if you will. We get in, we get further into that in something like War of the Worlds, which is very kind of disturbing. And yet a lot of it, t- you know, a lot of it is shown through the perspective of uh, Dakota Fanning's character. Yeah, and we'll get to that, I believe, next episode, right? Yeah, it's all happening. It's all happening. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's, you know, it, it, it's a fun sort of outlier in, in, in the later half of his career. It's probably as close to an art film that you're going to get from Spielberg. And the, fa- sure. the fact that he, you know, wrote it himself is, is meaningful and I'm uh, curious to see what the sort of consensus is for this film in you know 10 15 20 years from now uh, I think we you know we both already noticed the sort of respect it's being given has sort of improved upon its reception when it was released I would imagine that this sort of movie is going to rise in in critical estimation um, as we move forward in the over the years yeah I, I don't think it's one of his best but I think it's definitely one of his most interesting and I know that's a fuzzy broad word but I do think it is it's really a Rosetta Stone for him as a as an intellectual and as a filmmaker that if you if you truly want to understand this artist and what he's getting at you you do need to investigate this film fully all right man well this has been this has been fun we we said we were gonna go under an hour and it's almost been two hours so uh, I think that just shows there's a lot to talk about here it's a lot to talk about that's the thing is that like even Spielberg's worst films can teach you so much about filmmaking you know what I mean? Like there is still so much to glean. He is just such a consummate filmmaker that even while you're criticizing some of his quote unquote disasters, there's still so much to talk about in terms of his decisions and his approach. Yep, absolutely. I think that's a good place to leave off here. And we'll be uh, we'll be back soon for part five of Spielberg's oeuvre. Looking forward to uh, getting deeper into the uh, DreamWorks canon. In the next episode, we'll be discussing the 2002 and 2005 years, both of which include two films over the course of 12 months. So he keeps trying to pull this trick. Not always necessarily successful, but uh, he clearly keeps uh, challenging himself in this way. And then right in the middle of that is the terminal, which is its own thing. (laughs) That is its own thing, for sure. All right. Well, until next time, this has been We Like Movies. Say goodbye, man. Goodbye. Goodbye.